Hello everyone, welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. Thank you so much for being with us. My name is Tracy Siska. I'm the executive director of the Chicago Justice Project and also your host for our show. You can find out more of, about our transparency and accountability work at chicagojustice.org. Um, yeah, you can find out all the lawsuits we are filing over litigation, how we're expanding around the country. So uh, You'll get a lot of info. We're getting posting multiple times a week to the site and the blog. You'll find a wealth of information about accountability, transparency. We also starting to monitor uh, media coverage of crime and violence. It's all there for you. Today we are talking about, or most of the show is going to be about, a, what's called the Compromise Ordinance. And this ordinance um, basically is a compromise between two competing versions of like a community commission to oversee policing and police accountability in Chicago. So today we're going to play in the first segment half of an interview with uh, Tamar Abuzaid, who is a representative with Chicago Alliance for um, Chicago Alliance for Racist and Political Oppression, and all, and whose day job is a staff attorney at the Chicago chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations, and he's also by coincidence a former investigator for the Citizen Office of Police Accountability in Chicago, a job he left uh, last July in the midst of. The events of last summer and basically we're going to be discussing what is called the community commission on public safety this compromise ordinance between the community organizations that made up um what is called gapa and group of organizations that were um that drew up the ordinance that would be known as cpac and we'll talk more about what each of those are with tamer Tamara, sorry about that, Tamara. So we're playing part one of that interview today, and then the second part will be aired on Friday. Why Friday instead of our Wednesday? Well, it's because this coming Wednesday starts the special edition of our show, a monthly town hall. This one has been a long time in the coming. It is basically... Uh, the topic is reimagining a new paradigm of rape kit transparency. Um, and this, you may think we're all about, when we say transparency and accountability, it's all about abuse from the department, although while, while that's a lot of it, people have to understand um, there's issues with policing, um, but there's issues with policing and mostly with underserved communities. It's also about how the system is not adequately um, serving, protecting and serving the entire community. And that also means um, victims of violence, victims who are survivors of violence and violent attacks. So I will be moderating this panel. It's um, with our guests are Maria Bellata from Resilience Chicago, Ilse Connect, Joyful Heart Foundation, and Donna Piler uh, from the Guardian Angel Community Services, which I believe is out of Joliet, Illinois. And we'll be talking about ways of creating a robust and useful and, um, I guess useful is the word, useful transparency system about rape kit collection, processing, follow-up. So what does that mean? 
it means what hospitals are collecting rape kits do they are they being sent and collected collected by the police department or sent to the police department when do they go to the illinois well are they sent to the crime lab are they going are they and then how long do they sit at the crime lab before they're tested once they're tested is their dna if there's dna does it go into the codis database the dna database and is there a hit and if there's a hit and it goes back to the police department what follow-up is there an investigation uh is there an arrest when it, if it goes all the way to the prosecution is there a prosecution we believe at cjp that there is data created in this system the justice system every day that can answer all of those questions in a way to empower survivors to empower advocates to empower the media to understand and look at this more closely and empower policymakers. Illinois has taken some steps in the last couple of years to make this slightly more, slight, only slightly more um, transparent. There is a system now where um, survivors who do have rape kits collected get a serial number and there is now a system online where they can supposedly check the status of it to some degree when it's in the crime lab. We think we can go we can design a much more robust system with data from justice agencies at every step and have one so we can see what disparities there are in the system right so um as in all policing and justice system there is disparities and it usually gets around race it usually gets around socioeconomic status, it's geographic status in Chicago because that means all of that together is mixed in. It's all um, intersects, all intersects there. So we want to be able to know one way or the other definitively if there are any of these biases popping up, uh, popping up in this process, in the system as it processes rape kits. So that is what we're going to be doing Wednesday at 7 p.m. Central, not 5.30 like we usually are, 7 p.m. Central for this special edition town hall. This is hopefully want the start of a monthly series for us. We will see if we're able to keep up that monthly timetable. We hope to do it. If you got ideas for issues you'd want on this show or on the town hall, you can go to any one of the social media outlets you are watching this on, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Drop some comments in, ask questions. Um, also, um, that town hall, you can comment live um, for possible inclusion in the show. You can also ask questions live from any one of those platforms for, platforms for inclusion in the show. Okay, so we're going to get to our first segment now. This is running time about 30 minutes. It's a little, just a little under half the um, half of our conversation today with Tamer Abuzaid. Um, it's a real fascinating conversation. It gets behind the scenes of what was going on um, and what was going on at the point that the mayor, at least from the community's perspective, the mayor decided to leave the bargaining table and, and design her own ordinance, um, which we're still waiting for and no one has seen as far as I know. So I'm going to be bringing you the first half of this interview, when it's done, we'll come back. We have a couple more segments. We're going to talk about Adam Toledo and the the news that broke over the weekend, excuse me, over the weekend about um, prosecutors saying that he did have a gun when he was shot at the moment he was shot. 
when we're going to cover and talk about a story back in March, but it's a really good one. We're going to try to get the author from BEZ, Chip Mitchell, on the show, but just how white is Chicago's police union? And uh, we're going to talk, um, segment four is a, about a, about a, a cahoots, what's called cahoots in Eugene, Oregon. It's about a crisis response system that doesn't involve the police. There's a prototype project that was built in Denver to start that, that um, it's been successful. And PR did a story on it, but we're going to talk a little bit about what that success means in Denver. We're trying to get the, some of the people involved in that program on the show um, and what that should mean for Chicago and what some of the stuff CJP's doing. But first, Tamar Abuzaid and our conversation, and we'll be back uh, shortly thereafter. I hope you enjoy, and we'll be back soon to talk. Tamar Abuzaid, thank you so much for joining the show. I really appreciate you jumping on. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, so... You are a representative of the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Oppression. They are- Re uh, Repression. Oh, repression, sorry, yes. They have, um, it, since back when I was in Chicago, as early, the months after the Laquan McDonald shooting, started um, putting together an ordinance called CPAC, which stands for? Civilian Police Accountability Council. All right, there we go. I, for some reason, always have a problem remembering that uh, what that acronym stands for. Okay. Chicago is one big alphabet soup when it, it is, comes to it these is. organizations. It is. It so is. So um, um, I have come out, um, just for the record, I've came out when I wrote an op-ed in Cranes, uh, more in favor of GAPA than the CPAC version. This is some many months ago. And without trying to, uh, just wanted that on the record so everyone knew it. Um, but I want to say... Um, we're not going to go through in this interview the litany of changes that have gone through these ordinances over the years. Um, we'd need a, you need a PhD class to get through all the changes between CPAC and GAPA, the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability, and everything that has happened. But I want you to help us get caught up. So I can just tell our audience, for, um, since sometime in 2016, both um, the people backing CPAC and the people uh, backing GAPA came together to create something that they thought was going to be some kind of council or commission that was going to have oversight, a more uh, thorough and rigorous oversight of policing, but also a liaison between the community and the police, which we don't have now. The police board tries to do this with their monthly crappy meetings, um, which I've gone to for years and years, way too long, way longer than I want to admit because I'm an old man now. Um, and they've always sucked. They may slightly less suck now, but they've sucked for an eternity. Um, so in that, in that um, spirit, I've backed both ordinances for that purpose alone, just creating a real spot where communities could come together, um, ask questions from people that had some clout and some ability to demand answers. So those ordinances were going through this, um, going through the system independently, sometime in competition of each other, um, talking on again, off again, talks with Alderman in the mayor's office. And several months ago, or a few months back now, we're in COVID time, so who knows how long anything is anymore. We have a, we have a point where Mayor Lightfoot announces publicly um, that she's backing away from the negotiating table or negotiating tables and announces she's going to 
um, institute her own ordinance. And I, I'm on the record on this show saying that was a colossal, epic, unbelievable mistake. Um, and I said, Lori is incredibly smart, but I thought that was an incredible mistake. You don't tell community members who have been engaged in a process, both from CPAC and GAPA for five years that no, now you're done. That was just a colossal epic mistake. So what I want to start off is if you could help bring our viewers up on what was going on behind the scenes as best as you're comfortable telling us when, you know, leading up to the mayor walking away. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, sorry, my, my dog was barking there, but I was still on mute, so that's good. Yeah, no um, yeah so, uh, uh, you know, obviously, um, I wouldn't really uh, say that CPAC and GAPA, you know, um, were in conflict, but obviously there were folks who supported one or the other, but there were also a bunch of folks who supported both, including a bunch of co-sponsors. Um, but yes, they were they were two different they were two different visions, um, but they were both importantly created with with uh, the communities in mind, right? They were both created based on what the communities said they wanted, um, and. You know, you mentioned now how big of how colossal of a mistake it was for uh, Mayor Lightfoot to say that she's going to come out with her with her own ordinance and she split from because she was working with the GAPA folks and they were close to reaching an agreement. Well, just imagine how how much bigger <laughs> this mess up is on her part when she is still saying that she's going to come out with her own ordinance, despite the fact that the folks behind CPAC and the folks behind GAPA are now united behind one ordinance. So you really have all the people, all the community members on one side and Lori Lightfoot on the other. But to go back to your original question, um, there, were, there, you know, there were always communication channels between the folks behind CBEC and the folks behind GAPA. Um, and you know, I think at some point in time, honestly, the mayor's absolute refusal to give communities any real power is what at the end of the day uh, brought us together. And we said, okay, we have to hammer this out. We have to find something that we can agree on because otherwise the mayor may be able to pass something that is weak and that doesn't create the fundamental change that we need. Um, and that process, I would say like this last time this process started was, um, you know, started in earnest the end of last year. And, um, or, you know, maybe towards the fall of last year. And it involved lots and lots of meetings uh, between GAPA and CPAC folks ourselves, between GAPA and CPAC and um, alders who supported either. And it was an intensive process of uh, trying to figure out what we can put into uh, a unity ordinance, the people's ordinance that takes the best of both worlds, right? Um, folks from CARPER were ready to admit that there were things about GAPA that we liked, and folks from GAPA were ready to admit that there were things about CPAC that they liked. And it was a matter of trying to agree on what the best of both worlds is. And so what we ended up with is uh, a unity ordinance that, you know, creates that creates certain baseline protections and certain baseline, um, you know, you can call them reforms, I guess, um, that would be implemented right away. 
for example, you know, the, the creation of the commission, the fact that the commission would be nominated by people who are directly elected from the police districts, creating these local district councils uh, within each police district so that there's more of an input and a control from, from the communities. Um, and also, uh, you know, giving that commission power over policy, and we can get into some of the details later if you'd like. Um, but, and in addition, the ordinance also gives the uh, opportunity for the people of Chicago to decide whether or not they would like to go further and give the commission even more powers, and that would happen through uh, a binding referendum. And, um, you know, I have to, I have to just give tremendous credit to uh, the folks from Carper and Gappa and to our alders who met over and over again and really tried to hammer things out in good faith and finally because i think of that good faith we were able to we were able to reach a, a pretty good if i may say so myself a pretty good mm -hmm. ordinance um if you had to put your finger on it without going into the great details of the compromised ordinance yet we'll get to those later what was though if you could point to one or two things that the mayor absolutely refused to allow either the GAPA version or the CPAC version to have. What were those things? The mayor, um, I think the mayor's main sticking point with GAPA was the fact that GAPA wanted the commission to have final say over policy. Um, at some point, the GAPA ordinance did not, did not have that. And um, it kind of gave the mayor the power only if there's, you know, a tie, like only tiebreaker power for the mayor. So if CPD disagrees with the commission, then the mayor breaks the tie. Um, but I think the folks behind GAPA always wanted the commission to have the final say over policy. And the mayor was absolutely adamant that that would not happen, despite the fact that this is actually what is in place right now, for example, in Los Angeles, because, um, you know, we, we looked at different at, at different cities and how they do it. And in Los Angeles, um, the commission has final say over policy and the commission can be overturned by a two thirds vote of their city council, which is how it would, you know, which is how it works in, in our ordinance. But the mayor did not want that. Um, and by the way, I think city council in, in, in Los Angeles or whatever they call their body there has uh, overturned the policy decision of the police commission twice in the last 100 years, I think, something like that. So um, most policies actually are not controversial and uh, happen through collaboration. And we encourage that in the ordinance. But at some point, there may be a difference of opinion over what the policy should be. And there is a fundamental disagreement between us who believe that that should that you know, it should be democratically handled by that commission that is based on community input and community support. And the mayor uh, keeps using this phrase, I wear the jacket, I wear the jacket. And so she wants to be able to control, uh, have the final say on police policy. Yeah, I, I, I thought that would be one of the issues, right? I think it was kind of, you could read the ordinances or the versions of them throughout the years and kind of pick what was going to be the issue. I know that um, it's how the, how the position changes people. Uh, um, president of the police board Lightfoot and candidate Lightfoot would be all for these things. The mayor Lightfoot can't possibly be um, for them. It's, um, and she's also, by the way, against any alderman creating ordinances that would regulate police behavior. 
anyways, like the Anjanette Young ordinance that she's against. Right. It's really, you know, it's really sad, the kind of complete 180 that that has happened, because a lot of the things that are in this ordinance were recommendations like you met, like you alluded to, of the police um, police accountability task force that she headed. Um, and things, you know, she promised that she would pass GAPA, for example, within 100 days of her taking office. Well, now we're around the two-year anniversary. Yeah, we're times seven that. Is exactly, exactly. So it's, it, you know, I understand that, um, that politicians make claims and they don't live up to them. But I think uh, a large part of um, why Lori Lightfoot got, you know, a certain number of votes from folks. I think a lot of folks thought she wasn't really telling the truth and didn't vote for her anyway. But I think a lot of folks did believe her and saw her and really thought she was going to be a powerful voice for um, for reforming uh, the police department just because of her experience and just because of the police accountability task force involvement. Um, and it just we we really see a completely different person in office who not only wants not only disagrees with 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 this ordinance but like you said disagrees with a lot of basic common sense changes that need to happen in policing and she wants it seems to protect policing as it currently exists or to just put her stamp on it as opposed to the stamp of people and communities who have been working on this for, you know, a combined, a com like for a combined years of like over 10 years, right? If you put the years that GAPA put into this and the years that yeah. Harper put into this, right? Yeah. At least 10 plus years. And we're talking about just the most recent ordinances, right? People have been working for, for more civilian control of the police for decades. Yeah, um, well, so I, the I, fact that she can come up and, and, and stand against those communities and say, Police, police accountability is something that I started the conversation about, which is what she said in a press conference. She said, I started the conversation about police accountability in the city. Well, with all due respect, Madam Mayor, that is a ridiculous lie. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. And just, I mean, just to show you how ridiculous it is, the police board was created in 1960, by the way, for O.W. Wilson. It was supposed to be around for one year. Exactly. So he could have run the, the police department while not being a resident. And then the public liked the police board, so Old Man Daly kept it. And then when O.W. Wilson came in in 1960, he created, um, so for everyone, there, we now have the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, or COPA, which Tamar used to work at as an no, investigator. Oh, yeah, Tamar used to work at. Sorry, yeah, I thought you said yeah. you still work at. No, yeah, no, used to. used to work as an investigator. Okay. COPA replaced IPRA, the Independent Police Review Authority which was in 2007, created in 2007. The Independent Police Review Authority, or IPRA, took the place of OPS, the Office of Professional Standards, which was an internal office to the police department. Now, OPS- And which was headed by- Lori Lightfoot for, Lightfoot a, short, for right, a couple for a short, of years. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, OPS, everyone says well, it was created in 1976. Well, that's untrue if you don't, if you don't know your history. O.W. Wilson created an office that would later become the Office of Professional Standards and between 1960 and 1976 was reorganized and renamed four times because it was so incompetent and so broken and didn't do its job. And the last, uh, last version of that uh, 
reorg and rename came the Office of Professional Standards. And that lasted um, 31 years, as it turns out, and was created, replaced by a, le a slightly less broken organization called the Independent Police Review Authority, which unfortunately, even though I helped create COPA, COPA is not living up to its uh, the goals that people want, but also it's not, I'm not sure if it's built to ever do it. I have turned against, uh, I shouldn't say turning against, I've helped shape the police accountability system we have in Chicago. I've been involved since 1996. I don't think it can ever do what we need it to do. And I think that's why we need um, legislation like this uh, compromise ordinance, which I actually tend to really like. Um, we need these things. We need the Anjanette Young ordinance because the reality is we, if we want cops to stop doing things, we need to make them felonies, by the way. Um, I mean, look, I, I, I completely agree with you that it is that even creating something like COPA, which, you know, like you said, like on paper, there's some pretty dang good things about COPA. Yep. The problem is we are creating one thing, but we're plugging it into the same exact system. Yep. And, you know, we're not giving it enough powers at all, because at the end of the day, it still remains in the hands of the mayor. And we've seen what mayors do in the city with policing. And, you know, since you bring up since you brought up history, one of the one of the other things that the mayor, you know, is, is really adamant about is the fact that the mayor has to appoint the superintendent. Well, there was a short period of time in the 60s when the police board actually had the power to yeah. appoint the superintendent. And then, like you said, later, uh, it became, I think in the early 60s, uh, maybe around 63 or so, or so, it was changed to the police board nominates uh, folks for superintendent and the mayor appoints them. Um, so that's another thing that the mayor completely opposes. That is something that is not currently in the ordinance, but it is a power that would be given to uh, the commission if Chicagoans vote for the referendum. Yeah, and I, I really honestly think that, that that has a good chance of actually passing. Um, I think not, so too. And not just from like the quote unquote west side, south side, cop hater people that those stereotypes like we used to have the urban predator stereotype in the 80s and 90s now we have the cop hater stereotype i think a lot of people um understand the police force needs to be restrained now as, even though i am a police accountability person up and down i also say we have the police doing far too many things so we need to you know people say defund the police to me my defund the police is reallocate resources that go to the police to actually solve the problems sure and absolutely get them to do less and take stuff off their plate um someone going through mental health issues or drug addiction issues that isn't causing violence should not have a police officer show up period and that's my view let's take we could easily take I bet if we put our heads to a 30 to 40% of what cops do and answer every day off their plates, if we could build a system to have um, have something else respond that's healthier and make it better for the cops at the same time. I, I think that is a very conservative estimate, Tracy. It like as be. a matter of fact, be. it's it's always so fun to me when I show people statistics about what cops actually do. Right. Yes. Because when people think of what cops do, they run into the danger and they do this and they stop crime and all that stuff. And then when you show them what they actually do, that like less five, less than five percent of their time is actually spent on like forcible or violent felonies. And I mean, you don't need to be a cop to give a ticket. 
You don't need to be a cop to stop a car for a traffic infraction. You definitely shouldn't be a cop to respond to a mental health, uh, mental health situation, right? There are so many, and you don't need to be a cop to fill out police reports because the vast majority of the time, it's something after the fact, and all you do is write up some stuff and put it into the system. You don't need to have a gun for that. So you're absolutely right. We can, we can, you know, take so much uh, away from what the police does and give it to civilians to do, and it would be done either just as good or way better because those people, you know, we can actually be sending people with qualifications to deal with mental health crises yes. yep. as opposed to the small number of CIT trained uh, folks who we have in the police department now. And um, it, it, it's it's mind boggling that there is this refusal, absolute refusal, to look at the type of reallocation of resources that you mentioned. And it, you know, that's why it's it's really important for people when they hear defund the police or when they hear about abolition. Abolition, for example, is not just something about abolishing, you know, prisons and the police. It's really about putting systems in place that make the need for prisons and police obsolete. It's the presence of these community support systems. It's the presence of good education and good jobs and good healthcare. It's the, and community involvement and community-based ways of dealing with conflict, whether that's through things like restorative justice or transformative justice or community mediation or violence interruption, all these things work the evidence tell us they work better than policing policing as we know it simply is not effective in stopping crime it hasn't been and we keep throwing more and more money at it and it's not happening so i completely agree with you that there needs to be a complete shift and focus and this is by the way part of the purpose of this ordinance because this ordinance you know specifically states that this commission has to look at non-policing alternatives, you know, and has to look at ways to make sure that police is not dealing with issues that other people and other professionals are able to deal with. And that's one of my favorite parts about this, about this ordinance. You know, it partly also says that one of the purposes of it is to reduce overall spending on policing, because there are things that we can do, there are alternatives that we can carry out that would have better effects and would be way less likely to escalate situations into violence and uh, murder like, you know, like we see. So for well, for you and our uh, our listening audience here, we are working on a study. We have metadata on about, well, tens of millions of calls for calls for service. Um, we're fighting the CPD in a lawsuit to get more of them, but we have tens of millions. So we're going to, we're looking at issuing a report probably in the next four to eight weeks that analyzes uh, 911 calls um, seeking police services from 2013 through 2019. Um, and we are going to be doing, looking at like what percentage of these calls actually contain some sort of violence, right? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, when you bring this topic up and I have a, 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 one of my friends and contacts is a retired officer and I was talking about, um, you know, alternative response and he sent me this thing about a shooting that happened in a, uh, when this woman uh, had called the police because she was worried she was, uh, I think, a domestic violence victim and she was wanted to get her stuff out of her house, their house or their apartment. I'm not sure if what was shared. 
and so the police were there and the um, her husband, partner, spouse, boyfriend, whatever it was, shows up and just runs in the house shooting. And he's like, see, this is why we need police. And I was it's like, no, she had already been a victim of violence. She needed some force there to help protect her so she could get her clothes. I'm not saying send a paramedic to that. No one is. Like, yes, you're right that we are going to have to have a discussion about there is violence going on, or there's a high likelihood of violence, or someone actually needs physical protection, right, from an abusive person in their lives. What is that response? Maybe that response is still police, but that is the vast, you know, the vast minority of what you do on a daily basis. Um, we can go down that avenue forever, but I wanted to say that we're doing this report. Okay, so... Uh, we're going to go over some of the details in uh, the ordinance now, if you're cool with that. Absolutely. Okay, so this ordinance creates a district council in each police district, which we have 22 of them. The district councils have three people. And then from those district councils, there is a seven-person commission that is created out of the members of the district councils, if I'm correct on that. Uh not quite. So okay. uh, the, the people selected for the commission are not the people elected for the local district councils. They are the, the, the members of the commission are nominated by the district council. So okay. basically, like you said, there's going to be 22 local district councils and each of them will, you know, each local district council is three people. One of those, one of each of those three people will go to the nominating commission which will be a 22 member body. And that nominating commission will nominate folks for the, for okay. the, um, for, for the police commission. And um, the reason, the reason it was, it was done that way is because sometimes it is, um, it is hard to get a truly representative um, body just through elections because there are folks maybe who would not be able to run because of whatever laws or because of fundraising issues or whatever it is. And so nominating folks may actually give you a bigger pool. And so even in the referendum portion of, um, of the statute, we do not switch, it would not switch to a completely elected body. There would still be two out of the 11 members under the referendum who would be uh, nominated by the local district councils and appointed by the commission. And they would have to be representatives of marginalized communities, which is defined in the ordinance. Okay. That makes sense to me. All right. I had screwed something up there, but um, so let's go over some more points. The commission can require the attendance, which I, I like this, of officials, uh, and I'm assuming, and I think the ordinance states, the officials are the police board officials, COPA, and uh, officials within the police department. Correct. Or, um, at any meeting or, or special meeting of the commission. So why is that needed? It's needed because sometimes let me say this in a nice way. Sometimes those folks forget who they work for. And they need to be reminded that they work for the people. And when there are public meetings, we need them to be there to hear from the people directly. Because um, it is easy to ignore people. It is easy to send a representative or whatever the case may be. It is hard 
to look in the eyes of someone who tells you the police just killed my son three weeks ago and um, tell them, well, I don't think any changes need to be made. Now, it is also, I think, an opportunity for the people to hear from those officials, right? So for example, in the example of, uh, of COPA, right? There, there are certain things that people, for example, will blame on COPA when it's really like something about the collective bargaining agreement, right? Or, you know, there are things that you'll blame, you'll blame on the police, but the superintendent's hands are tied because of whatever law or CBA is in place. So it's also important for the people to have, you know, a, a better understanding of the policing system and the accountability system. And it's important to keep those, you know, leaders in CPD and COPA and the police board, it's important to keep them also, uh, you know, hold their feet to the fire and make sure that they are responsive uh, to the people. Yeah, I think, um, first of all, I love the fact that they would have to attend. I think that's great. And I think I agree with everything you said. I especially like this idea of like having to get clarity on what the problem really is. Uh, that was one of my issues with the people, Dante Servan. And if I got the names right, he murdered Rakia Boyd. Mm -hmm. And I apologize in advance. I do this on almost every show. There are so many people killed by police now that it's it's like it's like obviously happening all the time. It just happened last night again on um, a traffic stop that went bad. Um, it's I apologize if I screw up the names occasionally because it's too hard to remember all of them all over the country. I do my best. I really do. Um, but the people um, protesting or um, at the police board while Lowy was the president, fire him, fire him, fire him for months and months and months. Like um, it's being investigated by COPA. Copa's then got to pass the investigation onto the superintendent. Then he's got to make a decision. He can fight it and go back to Copa, or he can agree and it's got to file charges. So for like, you're protesting something that can't possibly happen, right? Right. And right. unfortunately, for the police board, I'm, I'm not anywhere near a fan of them. Um, we're getting lining up to sue them soon for FOIA violations, but they were yelling at people that had no power to do anything they wanted done. Yeah, I think I, I I think that we do a terrible job of explaining the system to people. And I also think that we also do a terrible job in making the system so complicated. Um, so for example, this this idea of, you know, and also of course contracts play a big part in that, yep. right? Because people want to see results. Well, Copa gets a complaint. They open an investigation. They do their investigation. They come up with a with a with a recommendation. It's sent to the superintendent. Superintendent has ninety days to respond, whether they agree or not. If they disagree, they have to meet to confer and see if they can agree. If they don't agree, it goes to one member of the police board. If the member of the police board sides with Copa, then it goes to all the members of the police board minus that one member who must recuse themselves. Um, and then, even after it's all said and done. With the police board then of course you have like the arbitrations and the courts and all that yeah. stuff and so you end up with this huge process and it ends up becoming sometimes you know it ends up becoming not responsive right yeah. and um i think that's one of the one of the things i was really looking forward to 
in the um, in the omnibus criminal justice bill that was uh, passed by uh, the Black Caucus or that was championed by the Black Caucus and passed by the Illinois General Assembly. Originally, it was going to prevent negotiate prevent uh, collective bargaining from uh, handling the issues of discipline and firing. And I thought that that was huge. Unfortunately, that part got taken out before it was passed. Um, so, you know, the FOP can still bargain over over uh, discipline. Um, but I think that's something that is that is really important and that uh, the, the contracts really need to be fixed. Um, and the process needs to be clearer to the people like that's why I love this idea of the local district councils right this is something like like the local school councils for example right, right? this is something that is hyper local that is in your community that you can really have a direct line to and from that local district council there is a direct line to the commissioners those seven commissioners who are going to be in charge of policy and all that stuff so it creates this really this really good direct line from community to commission um, instead of you know, people having to go, like you said, to the police board and complain about stuff that the police board can't do anything about or call COPA and complain about something that COPA can't do anything about or whatever the case may be. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. <clears throat> I hope you enjoyed the first half of our conversation with Tamar as much as we as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, fascinating guy. Very, very smart. I am very happy to see this compromised ordinance or compromise the compromise ordinance. Um, I think there's a lot of good things in it. Um, I'm sad to see that Mayor Lightfoot rejected something that she would have definitely campaigned for. By the way, she said, just as a reminder, first hundred days in office, she would pass GAPA. Here we are at 700 and she hasn't passed either one. And now she's supposedly authoring one and going to submit one from the mayor's office soon that no one's seen. Anyways, part two of that conversation with Tamar will be available or will be part of our show on Friday, 530 Central. Okay, we're going to take a really quick break. I want to pass along some information about our nation program. CJP Nation is where Volunteers and interns right now over a hundred and fifty people are involved from across the country and actually in two other countries Canada and India come together to do work on a bunch of things crowdsource research projects digital advocacy public policy uh, advocacy uh, Be a social media ambassador. Anyways, this is where you can do it We'll be right back after this, uh, this information gets communicated to you. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice. Our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation.
All right, and really quickly, every Wednesday night, except for not this one because of our town hall, our nation has strategy sessions where we're bringing in training for people. We're talking about crowdsource research projects. Um, so not this Wednesday because of the town hall, but um, every other Wednesday. But this one, we meet every Wednesday night at 7.30 if you want more, 7.30 Central. If you want more information, info at chicagojustice.org, and we will get you hooked up with the people running the nation. Okay, our next segment today, breaking information that came out over the weekend. The, if you remember, remember in the Adam Toledo death, I guess that's what you call it now, the 13-year-old, there was an adult with him at the time the police pulled up, fled, the adult got caught, Adam ends up in a Horrible incident where an officer shoots him once in the chest and kills him. The officer says he has a gun in his hand. They haven't yet released a body cam. Well, this week, um, this weekend, prosecutors in court, because they rearrested the adult, he missed a court hearing. This time they arrested him, and I guess somehow they were able to track the gun that the police say Adam had in his hand when he was shot back to this gentleman and in the court proceedings the state's attorney lays out that they have seen the body cam footage that Adam Toledo did in fact have a gun in his hand when he was running away from the police the police officer involved told him to drop it multiple times Adam turned and faced the officer with the gun in his right hand the officer shot and I'm not going to make any judgments on the case until I actually see the body cam video. Does this change things? It certainly does. It certainly does. Um, well, I, I should say it, 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 it certainly leans in a direction. Let's wait to see the body cam footage. I think the family's getting shown later this week, and then it's going to be released outright to the public. Then we're going to get a general idea of... I should say general idea. Then we're going to see the picture. We're going to see the whole picture of what happened that night. It's a tragedy either way. Um, guns, man. Someone, we've got to find a way to do things better around gun, gun, and the availability of weapons. It's, um, it's a tragedy um, in all of our communities across the country. That's for sure. And we've got to find a way. Hopefully this week information will be coming out that um, pretty definitively tells us with our own eyes what happened that night. Ear, eyes and ears. Um, and then we'll know for sure. We'll know whether the police and the prosecutors are telling the truth or whether they're full of crap. Um, they've been proven to be full of crap multiple times, so nothing would surprise me. So we're going to move on really quickly to another um, our next segment, which is um, an article that I really liked. I think this article dates back to the middle of March. I've been meaning to get it on the show. So today's the day. The title is Just How White Is Chicago? Just How White Is Chicago's Union for Cops? And this is basically the Fraternal Order of the Police. It's not the only police union in Chicago, but it's the one that represents the patrol officers and I think detectives. And it's at least... Um, you know, somewhere around 75%, 80% of the department, I would, I would bet at this point. Um, 
it's a really interesting, interesting article. And I'm going to say we're trying to get, we're going to be inviting Chip Mitchell, the author of the article on the show to talk more about it. I think this is something that was long overdue. I think it's a really good job. Let me get you some statistics to just show you. You should go and read it. The link is going to be in the stream. Um, but 107 people on the board since 2000, the board of the Fraternal Order of Police, that is. Just seven have been black, despite 20% of the officers being black and 29% of the public they serve being black. So at 20%, they're talking about needing 21, 22 people. We're at about seven. If you want to get up to how many, what percentage of the population is black, then you're talking close to 30%. You're talking about 30, 30, 31, 32 people. We're at seven. And if you zoom in, Chip, Chip Mitchell did a really good job on this article. If you zoom in the top leadership, the president and the three VPs, vice president since 2000, that has been all of 20 people have held those spots over the 20 years. Zero have been black. Zero. It's really fascinating when you think about how hard or, you know, at least rhetoric-wise, how the police departments have talked about getting representative of the communities they serve, blah, 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 blah. And here you look at the largest union in Chicago and almost no black people on their board and certainly none in senior leadership since 2000. And I might be wrong. I might be wrong, but I bet you it doesn't get better for the union. It does not get more diverse pre-2000. <laughs> it doesn't. It probably just gets uh, a much more, uh, much lighter shade of white um, in all those positions. But I think um, Chip Mitchell did a fascinating, fascinating job on this article. We're going to try to get him on the show to talk more about it. I'm it's really something that should be commended. This is the type of work. Um, it's the type of work that, you know, when you're on a, if you're on the crime beat or you're on the police beat, this is the type of work that should be getting done. This should not be the outlier it is. It's a really good story. It shouldn't be the outlier it is. And it doesn't have to be. Um, but it's, you know, that took some effort to do. That took some effort in digging. And that's a lot to ask from beat reporters, right? on police beat. It's much easier just to get, um, run a, what was it a couple weeks ago on the show, a zero sourced article. Oh, what was it about? Yeah. I can't think about it, but it literally had zero sources. Um, oh, it was about the um, fact that the CPD had sent out an alert to some, one of the police districts about how they had heard overheard or had intelligence that one gang gang leader ordered gang members to shoot, um, unmarked police cars. This was Tamar uh, and uh, in relation to Adam Toledo's shooting. Yeah, that's what it was. So it was probably last week that we did that segment that had zero sources. I mean, that's much easier to do. If you're just taking a rumor, you get caught or you get called by the PR person in the media. It's, um, it's much easier to do that than what Chip Mitchell did in his piece, which was uh, actual reporting. It's a, it's a shock, but it happens occasionally. Um, not so much from BEZ. I think they're better typically on these issues than the, uh, the two dailies are for sure. And certainly the television stations. On to our next segment. Next and last one for today's show. It's a story basically out of NPR. Um, and 
I, it's about um, the, basically an evaluation of sorts on a six month trial of, the title of the article is six month experiment replacing Denver police with mental health teams dubbed a success. And it's a story in NPR. And basically what this is, ladies and gentlemen, it is, I believe what they tried to do in Denver called, it's a star, and I don't remember exactly what star stands for at the moment, but you can get it by going to the article. Um, but basically, they have stood up to some degree an alternative response system. So the star people get dispatched by 911 to a certain segment of calls that would, doesn't need a person with a gun to show up and normally would get a person with a gun, but now gets this star um, crisis response. This is modeled to some degree after the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, and we know about it and you can learn about it because on the show a few months ago, we had Tim and Ebony. Uh, Tim is from the, I'm sorry, I should go into this a little more, from the, um, the White Bird Clinic in Eugene, Oregon, they have stood up 30 years ago. They stood up a program called Cahoots. As you see there, crisis assistance helping out on the streets. It's a crisis response team, and it teams up a medical professional, um, paramedic nurse with a mental health or social worker, and they take around, I think, 20. There's some argument over what percentage of calls, but say over 20% of the calls they take away from the police and a crisis response, a coot response is sent. This is what I'm going in Eugene, Oregon, and now Springfield, Oregon, for 30 years. Denver and a multiple other cities, Rochester, New York, New York City, and some others, I think San Diego, are starting after what happened last spring and summer, the events there. They started to um, stand up a cahoots response in, their response in their local jurisdictions. So... We are trying to get someone from the STAR program on our show. As you see here on the screen, that is a interview that we did with Tim and Ebony from the Whiteberg Clinic. We are in the process, and the reason I showed the advertisement for the nation is because we are in the process. We have a group of individuals who have spent uh, a couple of months now looking into CAHOOTS and the CAHOOTS program and looking into where it's been replicated around the country and how they've done it and what their budgets are. We, CJP, want to um, propose that Chicago send um, stand up a CAHOOTS response system uh, very closely mimicking what has been going on in Eugene. We don't need trials, ladies and gentlemen. Even in Denver, the trial is an absolute waste of time. They've been doing it for 30 years. They know what works. They do, They know what doesn't. This isn't something where they just tried it in Eugene for a year and it worked. It's like, oh, we may want to test that further to make sure this has been going on 30 years. So back to the nation. This group of people in the nation have been researching it for a couple of months. They're going to help us put together a proposal to uh, for the city of Chicago to stand up a CAHOOTS response. They're testing it in a very limited, very weak ridiculously horrific slow way in Chicago because that's Mayor Lightfoot's way of doing things. Uh, we'll try it. We'll dip a toe in when we already have 30 years of work. We don't need to dip a toe in. We can dive into this. Um, so, th but this is an example of the type of work Nation is doing. They're doing that for other types of programs around the country that we're researching. 
So if you're interested in um, taking part, once again, info at chicagojustice.org, and we can get you hooked up with our people running the cahoots, uh, running the nation program. Um, we are hoping in the next month or two at the longest to have our proposal around cahoots completed and published. And we're obviously going to bring some of the group members that are involved in that project on the show to talk about their experiences and what they've learned. It's a fascinating thing. It's very, very important. And if you're looking at the events of late, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the shooting last night, I think it was in Minnesota, where now the officer has been, who said, the officer's been, um, confusing cases in Minneapolis the officer said he actually went to pull his taser and he accidentally pulled his gun and fired and killed the person uh the young gentleman whose name I don't remember because they're coming too quick and too fast all over the country um so he meant to tase them rather than shoot him but he killed him we have the case which now happened in December but just broke in the news and I can't remember where it is but it involves a lieutenant and active duty lieutenant in the U.S. Army I believe who was maced, uh, pepper sprayed, and um, taken down on a traffic stop. The traffic stop was basically baseless. Um, we need to get cops out of interactions they don't have to be a part of. And the CAHOOTS way of doing it, they have 30 years of knowing what works. Um, that's obviously a best practice. Um, and if you go check out that show that we... Um, you can, I think it's in the, um, I think it's the link to it is in the chat. You can find out some more in-depth information from two of the people. Tim does Wiper, he does consulting for the Whitebird Clinic now, so I think he helps set up, he helps other jurisdictions set up the CAHOOTS program in other, in, in their local jurisdiction. And Ebony actually was a crisis responder on the streets in CAHOOTS and is now running that program. So it's some really, really good information on the CAHOOTS program and what is possible. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, we will be back Wednesday, 7 p.m. Chicago time with our kickoff of our town hall series. Um, this one this month is rape, imagining a new paradigm for rape kit transparency. Hope you can join us. You can comment live for inclusion in the sh show excuse me you can also ask questions live from twitter facebook youtube twitch all of those where we stream our show every week um you can interact live in our town hall thank you so much and we hope to see you all soon see you wednesday <laughs>